Good morning. Would you turn with me, please, to Psalm 119? This morning, I'm going to look with you at verses 33 to 40. And again, as I've said to you many times in the last several months, I commend to you the book of Psalms. The Psalms teach us how to pray, how to live, how to worship. Psalm 119, verse 33. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts, and your righteousness give me life. This is the word of the Lord. The first thing I want us to see in this section of Psalm 119 is how aware uh, David is of what he needs. He knows what he needs. He needs to be taught. He needs to be given understanding. He needs to be led. He needs to have his heart changed. He needs to have his eyes turned. He needs to be given life. He needs to know God's promise. He needs to be spared reproach. He needs to be given life. He knows what he needs. And what does he do with that? Where does he go with that? That awareness of need makes him cry out to God. Teach me. Give me understanding. Lead me. Incline my heart. Turn my eyes. Give me life. Confirm your promise. Turn away the reproach I dread. Give me life. That is the heart of the Christian life. It is a sense of of complete neediness and dependence on God that makes it impossible not to pray. He sees his need and he has to pray. What else can he do? What else is he going to do? What are you going to do? No one has to make him call out to God. No one has to remind him. No one has to coerce him. No one has to cajole him. He sees his need and so he cries out to God in prayer. Calling out to God is the natural and spontaneous reflex of a soul that knows its need and knows the character of God. I am needy. I am desperate. I need God's help. I will die without it. But God is good, 
and powerful and kind and filled with mercy and loving kindness. And he will hear me when I call to him. And so he calls out to God. Now notice the faith behind those prayers. He sees his neediness. He knows what God is like. He calls out, and because he knows God, he knows that certain results will follow. Verse 33. If I call out to God to teach me the way of his statutes, he will teach me. And I will keep it to the end. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. He knows what will happen if God answers this prayer. Verse 34. If I call out to God for understanding, he will give it, and I will keep his law and observe it with my whole heart. I know what will happen if God answers this prayer, and I know that he will, in fact, answer this prayer. Verse 38. If I call out to God to confirm his promise to me, he will do it, and I will fear him. Faith. Awareness of need. Calling out to God. Knowing the character of God. Knowing that God will answer. That's what prayer looks like. Behind all of these requests, there is a solid, steadfast, stable, bedrock certainty that God will keep his promises and he will hear these prayers. And so the question for us is, do we pray like this? And if not, why not? Is it because you don't need anything? Like the people in the book of Revelation. I'm, I'm rich, I'm well, I need nothing. Or is it because you don't know the character of God? You know your need, you don't think God is all that inclined to be good to you. Or you have no faith that this is true of you. If we don't pray, there's something wrong. Jesus says that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And that certainly applies to prayer. What is in our heart, either belief or unbelief, either confidence in God's goodness or doubt about God's goodness, either awareness of our need and our sin or self-satisfaction? either assurance of God's promises or misgivings about God's promises. That is all going to come out in the way that we speak to God. That's why it's such a penetrating question to ask yourself, what do I really pray about? What do you actually pray about? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Have you ever kind of turned around and looked at yourself and observed yourself praying? What do I actually pray about? Our prayers often reveal the pattern of our self-centeredness. Of the many possible things to ask for, what do you concentrate on? Over and over and over again, what things do you come back to? Prayer is about desire. We ask for what we want. 
Do your prayers reflect the desires of God or the desires of the flesh? Are your prayers the overflow of faith or the overflow of unbelief? And you think, how in the world can a prayer be the overflow of unbelief? How does that make sense? Well, it makes sense because Scripture demonstrates this for us several times. Prayers that are actually the overflow of the flesh, overflow of unbelief. For example, James 4, 3. James says to us, you ask, he's talking about prayer, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now every one of us knows what, that's, what that means. If we're self-aware enough to step out and look at our prayers, this, we see this kind of thing all the time. Not prayer motivated by faith, not prayer motivated by real need with God, not prayer motivated by confidence in the goodness of God. Prayer motivated by what? Your passions. I want what I want. Maybe if I ask God for it, he'll give it to me. I don't want him. I want what I want. I want what God will give me. You see the same kind of thing, unbelief expressed in prayer in Luke 18. Most of us will remember this parable, the parable of Jesus uh, that Jesus tells about the two men who pray in the temple, the one the Pharisee, the other the tax collector. And everything is made clear by what they pray, right? He also told this parable, Luke 18, 9, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Any need going on there? Any need being expressed? Any confidence in God? No need for confidence in God. He's confident in himself. And the contrast is with this man, the tax collector. The tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, even in prayer. So what are your prayers like? Now, that's not really what I want to talk to you about this morning. All right? So, hang on. We're going to turn that way. That's not really what I want to talk to you about this morning. What I really want to talk to you about this morning is the next verses. Verses 36, 37, and 38. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. It's very interesting that in the middle of this barrage of requests for teaching, for leading, for life, he focuses on the issue of money. Where did that come from? Why does he start talking about money? Why does he start talking about 
selfish gain. Incline, verse 36, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. He sees in himself a desire for selfish gain, and so he calls out to God to incline his heart away from it, to turn his heart towards God's testimonies and away from greed and covetousness. Now, why do you think he prays like that? Why is this issue of money so important? What does this have to do with prayer? What does this have to do with God? What does this have to do with obedience? What does this have to do with faith? The way we think about money and the way we use money has everything to do with our relationship with God. Everything. Colossians 3.5 Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. How you, how you think about money has everything to do with God because covetousness is idolatry. Matthew 6.24, no one, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Has everything to do with God and you're with, your, with your relationship with him. Psalm 10, verse 3, for the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. This is why God speaks to, to church leaders the way that he does. Over and over again, 1 Timothy 3.8, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. In Titus 1, same thing about pastors and elders. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, the opposite of greed. A lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. This has to do with everything. And probably the most intense passage about the relationship between money and your soul is in 1 Timothy 6. Look at these words. I think they're going to put it up here. If anyone teaches, this is 1 Timothy 6, verse 3, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So these wicked men think that godliness is a means of financial gain. Now, there is great gain in godliness with contentment, he says. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. 
But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Your soul is at stake. Your soul is at stake. Verse 11, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Jesus Christ who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Paul makes this incredibly stark contrast between the man who loves money on the one hand the man who's greedy for selfish gain, and the man who pursues pursues Christ on the other hand. The man who is in love with money, the man who loves God. The man who hopes in money, the man who hopes in Christ. The man who loves money uses Christ. He's talking about a man who professes to be a Christian. How can, how can godliness be a means to gain if this is a man who's a pagan? It's a man who thinks he's a Christian and who uses money or uses Christ for his greedy ends. And of course, we see this all over the place, all the time. We see it out there. We see it in our own hearts. Things go better with Jesus. God wants all of his children to drive Cadillacs. There's a man on TV right now who's written a book called, a Christian preacher on TV, written a book called How to Be Rich and Have Everything You Ever Wanted. And of course you have to buy the book. So the way you get rich and have everything you ever wanted is become a TV preacher who writes a book called How to Get Rich and Have Everything You Ever Wanted. Because godliness is a means of gain, for him anyway. The result of that mindset, don't be deceived, is verses 9 and 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. This is what they won't tell you. This is what the advertising won't tell you. This is what the, the, uh, the prosperity preacher won't tell you. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Your soul is at stake. 
You think you're not going to wander away from the faith? Many have before you. For money. But the opposite of that is the man who runs away from all of that, who flees from all of that, and chases instead righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. He fights the good fight of the faith. He takes hold of eternal life. Part of the fight of the faith is turning away from from money and the love of it. He fights the good fight of the faith. He holds, takes hold of eternal life, the world to come. He keeps the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's more impressed by the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has ever seen or can see, who has honor and eternal dominion, he's more impressed with him than he is by money. It's the same contrast that we see back in Psalm 119. It's exactly the same thing. Our hearts will either be inclined, they'll either be bent towards God's testimonies, or they'll be bent towards selfish gain. Now, how do we get that bent towards God and his word? We come into this world bent towards selfish gain. How do we get unbent? How do we get inclined to God and his word? Well, the most obvious answer is that we ask for it, just like David did. How do you change your own heart? You can't. So you ask. Verse 36. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. But verse 37 opens it up even more. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. My heart will be inclined towards selfish gain if my eyes are constantly looking at worthless things. Doesn't that hit us? Because we spend our days looking at worthless things, contemplating worthless things. Not looking at God's ways, but worthless things. So of course our hearts are bent towards selfish gain. Think of all the worthless, vain, silly, empty, useless things we fill our eyes and our time with. No wonder we, we live in a culture permeated with a lust for selfish gain. No wonder we ourselves struggle with a constant desire for more. Constant sense of dissatisfaction. Constant sense in the back of our minds that if only I had this, then I would be happy. Everything that we look at around us is empty. And it's all reinforcing the selfishness, the self-centeredness that already comes so naturally to us. We live in a culture designed to incline our heart to selfish gain and to fill our eyes with worthless things. That's the point of our popular culture. It's the point. It's the only point. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our, our hearts are tied to our treasure. Our hearts will be pushed and pulled by what we treasure. 
If we, tre- if we treasure, if we place before our eyes worthless things, then our hearts will treasure all of that. And we will love money and the stuff that money can get us. So in verse 36, David says, he prays to God, Incline my heart to your testimonies. Bend my heart to your word and not to selfish gain. But our hearts are tied to that treasure. Our hearts are tied to what we treasure. So he says in verse 37, Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. But how can I have my eyes turned away from worthless things? Do I force myself? Do I grit my teeth? Do I peel my eyes away from the things that I shouldn't look at simply by sheer force of my will? Can I force my heart to be inclined toward God and his word and not toward selfish gain? Absolutely not. Which is why he says this in verse 38. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Here's the key. What is he asking for? He asks for God to confirm or to establish, to verify his promise, his word to him. In other words, oh God, show me your truth. Let me taste your promise. Let let me know your word, not just in theory, but in reality and in life. Lord, open up your word to me. Why? So that I may fear you. Open up your promises to me so that I may fear you. Let me know and taste your promise so that I may fear you. Now, we have a hard time putting those things together. Fear, promises. Why do we fear in response to promises? I thought promises were made to tell us, don't be afraid. But he says, confirm to me your promise so that I may fear you. This is all through Scripture. The more we know God's promises in his word, the more we will fear him. 2 Corinthians 6. Let's just listen to these words. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me. Promises, right? The next verse says, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Open up your promises to me so that I may fear you. Psalm 130 says the same thing. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there's forgiveness so that you may be feared. Knowing God's forgiveness, knowing his promises enables us to fear God. And Being able to fear God enables us to turn away from the love of money. So let's put this all together. Here's the point from Psalm 119. We see our neediness and sin. 
We see the tendency in our own hearts to drift away, to be bent towards selfish gains. So we ask God to incline our hearts toward him instead. But we don't just pray to God to take away this lust that we have for money and for the joys that we think money will buy for us. We also pray for the ability to keep our focus on God and on eternal realities, not on worthless, empty things. Take my eyes away from those earthly, earthly, empty, worthless things. Set my eyes on your ways. Because we know that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But we can't just live in a negative way. We can't just always be looking away. We have to be looking at something. Ultimately, in order to turn away from selfish gain and towards God and towards his truth, we need to fear him. We need to honor him. We need to worship him. And God's means for helping us to fear him is to show us his promises. So let's put it backwards. Turn it around. I see God's promises. Think of this table that's laid before us this morning. This is a visible picture of the promises of God. His death. His body was broken instead of yours. His blood spilled instead of yours. And all who trust in him have eternal life. This is a visible picture of the promises of God. And so I see God's promises, his promises of life and forgiveness, his eternal presence. Strike in me, not flippancy, not sin, but they strike in me awe. A godly fear of God. And that fear of God enables me to turn away from empty, worthless, hollow things. And as I turn away from empty, worthless, hollow things, I am enabled to also turn away from selfish gain, the love of money, because I see how hollow and empty and worthless it is. And instead, my heart is inclined toward God and toward his word, and I love him. And so what do I do? I cry out to him, knowing that he'll hear me. Ultimately, all of that can be traced back to God's work of opening up his promises to us. You will never be free from the love of money until you embrace and taste the promises of God. Which is exactly what we see. It's exactly what God says in Hebrews 13. Look at these words. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. Keep your life free from the love of money. That's what we're talking about. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now here's what we usually do with these verses. What we usually do with these verses is we look at the first part, the command, keep your life free from the love of money, be content with what you have. And we think, yeah, I know, I know, I've got to, I've got to, I've got to, Stop wanting all that stuff, and I've got to turn away from the love of money, and I've got to be content with what I have. I've got to, I've got to. Or we only look at the second part, which we, you know, inscribe on a little plaque and, and hang it next to the precious moments figurines. I will never leave you or forsake you.
but they're together. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. How in the world am I going to do that? Four, he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Do you see it? The promise, I will never leave you or forsake you, enables me to be free from the love of money, free from the desire for selfish gain. And being free from selfish gain enables me to worship God and know him and love him and serve him. Because Jesus says you cannot serve both God and money. And so I, I call every one of you, turn to Jesus Christ. Embrace his promises. This table is laid out for you to remind you of the promises of God. Do this in remembrance of him. Remember what he's done. Do you think Glenn loves money or God right now? Standing at the brink of eternity, looking over, seeing the promises of God, and he is clinging to them, isn't he? And so he's able to love God. You will be in exactly his position someday. Will you have lost your soul? As he says in 1 Timothy 6, wandered away from the faith, pierced with many pangs. Or will you stand there looking confident because of the promises of Christ? Let's pray. Father, we do need you desperately to shake us from our love of money, our love of this world, our love of wealth, our love of ease and comfort. We need you to shake us away from that. We need to fear you. We need to love you and serve you instead of loving and serving money. We need to worship you instead of being covetous idolaters. We need to be men and women of prayer who call out to you in our need, confident in your promises, confident in your character. And so here we are, Lord, calling out to you. I pray that you would hear us. I pray that you would meet with us. I pray that you would cause us now as we draw near to your table to draw near to you and to find you drawing near to us as you promised. I pray in Christ's name, amen.